Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it would seem best to them. But he disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Lord, as we examine uh, these words today, some of which are difficult and hard, I pray that you would bless us to hear what it is that you have for us, and that we would take the exhortation that discipline is for our good, even when it doesn't feel very good <laughs> to heart. And help us, Lord, to receive what it is that you have for us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Welcome to St. Bart's. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. You came for the comfy, cozy readings of our passages today. One thing I love about the liturgy is whether the scriptures make us feel good, whether we totally understand them, whether they are hard, whether they offend us, we still say at the end, no matter what, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And we're trying to receive his word as a gift even when Jesus says these things, Jesus, what are you saying? Fire, division, you're not bringing peace? What are you talking about, Jesus? And I want to pay attention to Hebrews today because I think it has something to say to us about where we are. And there's some hard words in here too, but I think some good words. I think hard words can make soft people. They can soften us up. 
And the reason I want to talk about the book of Hebrews is because the book of Hebrews is written to a people who are tired. It's written to a people who are wondering if this whole Jesus thing is even worth it. And they're wondering if they should give up. So throughout the book, the writer will describe something, he'll teach on something, and then on the basis of that, he will encourage them, exhort them, spur, spur them on. And his message is, don't give up. His message is, I know that it's hard. His message is, look at Jesus. Look what he endured. Look at the race that he ran and find, ran and find encouragement in that. So the writer is not pretending like there's not difficulty. He's not pretending like the weariness and the exhaustion that they feel, and perhaps even the persecution that they're undergoing is not real. But he gives us a way for th to think about what that discipline is and what it means. So if you look at Hebrews 12, which is probably familiar to you, it talks about discipline in two arenas. One is the realm of athletics and race running, and one is in the realm of the family. That athletes are disciplined in order to run the race with an endurance, and then in the context of a family, discipline shows legitimacy. Now, this father-son, parent-child dynamic of the two is probably the one that makes us the most uncomfortable. But for the original hearers of the letter, that was the one that would just basically be a truism. Of course, fathers discipline their sons, parents discipline their children. It would make perfect sense both to a Jewish listener and to a Greek or Roman listener. So for a Jewish listener, the writer of the Hebrews quotes directly from the book of Proverbs. It's right in the middle of our passage. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. That's straight from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which is itself, yes, a collection of wisdom sayings, but at its heart, it really is a book of exhortation from a father to a son. And more than that, it's a book of exhortation from a king to a prince. How do you live in a wise way? How do you navigate the world in the way of royal living? And one of the things that wise living means, the book of Proverbs insists, is that we pay attention to life and its circumstances, which is what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing. So for a Jewish audience, it would make total sense for him to say, hey, look at fathers and sons, discipline. Remember? And then this language of legitimate and illegitimate son comes from the Roman world, and what the writer is saying is when a father is preparing his son to receive the estate, he disciplines him in a way so that he's ready to take over the estate. So this argument about fathers and sons, parent and child and disciplines is an argument, we would say, from lesser to greater. If it's true about earthly parents who did the best that they could, how much more true is it of our Heavenly Father when he disciplines us? But of course, in the middle of this is the great understatement of all time. The moment uh, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. <laughs> yeah, duh. 
Discipline is painful rather than pleasant in the moment, but what happens? Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it, trained by discipline. So the context of the family, that may be difficult for us, but the context of sports is actually one that maybe we feel a lot more comfortable with because we praise athletes all the time for their discipline. We, train at, we praise athletes all the time for what they put themselves through in order to achieve or maintain greatness. Um, you can just Google Tom Brady's diet to see this. People talking about what he does and doesn't eat and why is it that this person who seemingly made a deal with the devil to play football into his 40s is still so great. You can watch videos of Steph Curry training with different sized balls coming at him from all kinds of different angles so that when he stands behind a three-point line, it, he makes it look easy. We actually praise this discipline in athletes. In our context, it makes perfect sense that you would train in this way, that you would give everything to win, to be a champion. And the writer compares the Christian life to that kind of run, to that kind of athletic event. And he's saying, the discipline that you endure is meant as that kind of training. You may have seen uh, NBA players take ice baths. That's unpleasant to get in a bath of ice, and yet it helps them recover. That's a discipline that makes their endurance possible. Weightlifting, running, getting feedback from a coach. And in fact, the image of the coach is probably the thing we're most comfortable with rather than a father or a mother or a parent that chastises us. But a coach who's getting in your face and telling you to be better, I mean, we love that. Just see Friday Night Lights, right? We want the coach to tell us that we can be better, to exhort us, to press us on. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Sports is for us, especially in the United States, a common language, even for those who don't watch a lot of sports. You probably know who Tom Brady is. You probably know who Steph Curry is. And if you've ever watched even clips of them, there is a sense of awe when you see an athlete, when you see what a human body can do that's been disciplined. And it's graced movements, it's graceful movements. Things that the body could not otherwise do if it were not trained to do so. If there were not flexibility, if there were not strength, if there were not endurance. And if there were not a whole team of people around them, that's what surprises me sometimes when you look into athletes, someone like LeBron James, the team of people that makes LeBron James possible, the nutritionists, the trainers, the coaches, the hours of watching film, people who know more about the game than him, watching the game with him, training him, disciplining him. It's the same with all great athletes. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look at these great athletes. They run a race. You're running a race. The pilgrimage of the Christian life is a race. And he says, let us run with patient endurance, the race. Because we're not sprinting, we're marathoning. <laughs> the Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. So, we have the image of the race, we have the image of the father and the son, the parent and the child. But going back to the 
beginning, we have this image. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's talking about the whole previous chapter, Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of Faith, where the writer meticulously goes through the Old Testament and has example of example of example after example of people who faithfully ran the race with endurance. And what he's saying here is that those people surround us and that they're cheering us on. Cloud of witnesses is one way to say it. The other way to say it is the communion of the saints. So when we say the creed later, and we say, I believe in the communion of the saints, what are we saying? Well, one thing that we're saying is that I believe in those who have gone before, that we are joined in a common faith, that we are in communion with them, and that we are connected to all of God's faithful people throughout time and space. For the writer of Hebrews, that meant Abraham and Moses and David and Sarah and Rahab and even Samson, that dum-dum, he's in that list, that's hope. If Samson's on the list, we can be on the list. That's the communion of saints. They're cheering us on. How do we get the strength to run the race? One of the ways we get the strength to run the race is we surround ourselves with people who encourage us. It's part of what community is. It's part of what being the church is is that as the body of Christ, with the different gifts that we have, we build each other up and we're exhorting each other to keep going. Acknowledging that yes, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it gets dark. But we also look to the scriptures. That's one thing that Paul says about the Old Testament, that these things are given for us as an example, both positive and negative. And the writer of the Hebrews is demonstrating that to us, is that we're meant to read the stories that have come before as encouragement and exhortation that, yeah, we can run the race too. That Abraham is the father of our faith, even though he did all the stupid stuff that he did. Twice saying that his wife was actually his sister. He did that twice. She let him get away with that twice. And he had a promise from God that he would have a child by Sarah, and he tried to skip the line and try to do it another way with Hagar. And yet, he's in this list. And you could go person by person, and the hit record is not great. David, what did he do? He was a man of faith. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was the man after God's own heart. And a murderer, adulterer, and a terrible father, by the way. Just read about his kids. Oh, and yet he's here. Samson, I already mentioned him, Gideon. That's our cloud of witnesses. What does that cloud of witnesses say to us? That to run the race well is not to run it perfectly, but to run it faithfully. That you can faithfully run the race, and that doesn't mean perfection. It means that as you are going and as you are stumbling, there's a determination to keep getting up again and again and again. And the Bible is a great place 
for that kind of encouragement. Community is a great place for that kind of encouragement. And here's my plug for church history. Church history is a great place to find this encouragement. For 2,000 years, in different cultures, in different times, in different places, in different contexts, under all sorts of different favorable and unfavorable circumstances, people have faithfully run the race that was set before them. I'll give you one simple example. Aaron Schmidt texted me yesterday and asked me if I'd listen to the Lectio 365 meditation. A lot of people at St. Bart's use this app, Lectio 365. It's great. It's usually 10 minutes or less. It's a meditation on scripture. It's an opportunity to pause, to pray. Yesterday, they recounted what's called the Moravian Pentecost. The Moravian Pentecost that occurred on August 13th of 1727. In Moravia, there was a man named Count Zinzendorf. He is not a vampire, even though that is an amazing vampire name. (laughs) He was a landowner, and he turned over his land to persecuted Christians, and they created an intentional community. And for five years, it did not go very well. They fought with each other. There was bickering, backbiting, all that sort of thing. But on August 13, 1727, the great Moravian Pentecost occurred, which ignited a prayer meeting, which continued nonstop for more than 100 years, a prayer meeting that continued nonstop for 100 years, propelling missionaries aflame with the gospel to the ends of the earth and launching the modern missions movement. Those are people who ran the race. They went all over the world preaching the gospel. Part of what the writer is telling us is there's a cloud of witnesses and we should pay attention to them because they're cheering us on. Their lives testify to the fact that there's a way to run the race faithfully. Faithfully but not perfectly. That stumbling is part of it and getting back up over and over and over again is part of it. A big part of it. Actually, that's in the book of Proverbs, the difference between a fool and a wise person. A wise person is not the person who never stumbles. A wise person is the person who will learn from it. The fool is the one who bristles themselves and said, hit me again, and is defiant. The wise person is pliant, like a branch in the wind that has water in it that can move with the wind, not a brittle branch that as soon as it gets hit with the wind, snaps off. That's a fool. The wise person is the person who pays attention to circumstances and is able to say, okay, God, what's going on? Where are you? How do I get back up? So we have this image of the race We have this image of discipline. We have this cloud of witnesses. But really, the writer of the Hebrews is concerned more with anything that we would look to Jesus. We talked a lot about sports, more than I'm frankly comfortable with. But it's all here, so I have to do it. And I'm gonna do it some more. A lot of conversations around sports center on the question, who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time? In football, who's the greatest of all time? Is it Tom Brady, is it so-and-so? 
That's what the book of Hebrews is about. The goat, the greatest of all time. That's Jesus. The whole first chapters of Hebrews is, hey, Jesus is better than angels. That's what chapters one and two are about. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron the priest. Actually, he's better than any priest. He's better than any prophet. He's better than any king. He is faithful over God's house as a son. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who ran the race faithfully and perfectly. <laughs> Here it says founder and perfecter. I like the language of pioneer, which is a possible translation, or the language of a trailblazer. Someone who blazes the trail that then we run after him. That's who Jesus is. Look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Does Jesus know something about discipline? <laughs> yeah. Does he know something about getting back up over and over and over again? The writer of the Hebrews is at pains to show us the humanity of Jesus throughout the book, to show us that he was tempted as we were, to show that he felt the depths of betrayal and despair, all the things that we endure, and yet he kept going. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the one who's run the race and blazed the trail so that we can follow. And that's the ultimate model. Even when we look to heroes and heroines of the faith, even when we look to the scriptures for that, even when we look to church history for that, even when we look in our own lives for that, those people are still just following Jesus. They're following him. That's what I'm trying to do, that's what we're trying to do, is to faithfully follow the one who blazes the trail, who's the pioneer, who goes into the country that no one's ever been before so that we can go after him. And why does he do it? He does it for the joy that was set before him, which is what? Well, it's us. It's the glory of his father, yes, but it is also to win the salvation of that cloud of witnesses. These are people who had great faith, but what did they have faith in? God. That God is someone who keeps his promises and that he's someone who rewards those who seek him. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. That's the exhortation. Do we believe that God is a rewarder of those who faithfully seek him? Not perfectly seek him, but faithfully seek him. Those of us who will get up again and again and again and again, seven times in a day maybe. Maybe seven times is a good day. <laughs> maybe it's more than that. It's not that you get knocked down, it's that you get back up over and over and over again. I've talked about discipline and I've talked a little bit about wisdom and this idea of paying attention to our lives. Um, we don't always know what God is up to in the moment. We don't always know what God is up to retrospectively. We can look back six months, a year, two years, and it may not all add up. It may never add up perfectly where we have a perfect understanding of what God 
was doing. But we can still pay attention to our lives and ask God, where are you in this circumstance? In the Christian life, we talk about what are called spiritual disciplines. These are things in this context that stir up our faith, that spur us on to continue faithfully. I wanna talk about one discipline. And if you're interested in learning more about it or trying it, you know, feel free to call me, email me. I'd love to talk about it. But this is a practice, a discipline, where we learn how to pay attention in our lives on a day-to-day basis. It's the examine prayer. Um, and it comes from Ignatius of Loyola in the spiritual exercises, part of the Jesuit um, regimen of spiritual exercises, but I commend it to anyone. An examined prayer is the examination of conscience at the end of the day, and it's in one way very simple and in one way very hard. It's simple because you're simply pausing at the end of the day and going back through your day with God and asking the where question. (laughs) Where were you today? Where did I miss you? What were you up to? It's almost like watching a closed caption video of your day with God. It's almost like a football player watching film with their coach and saying, what went well, what didn't go well. That's what the exam and prayer is. And then simply thanking God for those places where we recognize that he was with us asking God to help us grow in our attention where we missed him in places. And also, the practice closes with us imagining our next day before we fall asleep and saying, God, these are the hard conversations I'm gonna have tomorrow. This is this difficult coworker I'm gonna encounter tomorrow. Will you be there with me when I have that conversation? Will you help me? This is to me, has been personally a transformative discipline. It helps because there's not always, you know, so much to find maybe in a given day, but there's usually something. And there's something always that I would have missed if I wouldn't have taken the time to ask God, where were you today? What were you up to today? Where did I miss you today? And it also trains you to start looking. That wherever you go, God's already at work. That is one of the great principles of Ignatian spirituality that I think translates well to our context. The idea that wherever you go, God is already there and he's at work. And that we are trying simply to join up with what he's doing. Jesuits are another story of people who went all over the world, founding schools. And think of the educational uh, legacy of the Jesuits, some of the best schools in our country founded by Jesuits. Missions all over the world. We have the Moravians, we have the Jesuits. And this is a discipline that every Jesuit does every day. Learning to pay attention. This is a discipline. A quarterback watching a film of throwing an interception over and over and over again is not the most pleasant experience. And yet, 
you can learn from that how not to do it again or what to do differently next time. For that sort of thing, I would commend the exam and prayer to you. If you want to know more about it, you can Google it. It's E-X-A-M-E-N. If you want to sit down and talk about it, I will have a pour over coffee and I'll tell you all about the exam and prayer. I would love to do that. Just write it on the connection card. Pour overs with exam and prayer training. Great. We'll get it done. It's a simple thing. It takes five to ten minutes. Um, I'll be honest, I usually fall asleep before I finish. So, there you go. I don't do it perfectly, but I try to do it faithfully. I'd like to close by having uh, us all stand together. And I want you to imagine that you are the great cloud of witnesses. Because you are for each other. Um, you don't know the ways in which, for me and for others, when you live your faith, it makes our faith possible. When you see someone being faithful, it stirs us up. So I just want to read as a benediction these opening verses again, and then we'll close in prayer. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, I pray that the community of St. Bart's, that this church, this parish, would be a cloud of witnesses. And that we could be those who faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully run the race. And as we see others struggling, that we would lift them up and encourage them. And Lord, I pray that we could be those who pay attention to our lives in such a way that we receive the discipline that you have for us as a gift, even though it is not pleasant in the moment, knowing that there is an inheritance, knowing that there is a joy set before us. Bless us, Lord. Help us to live in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.